0: Thank you, Brother Travis. God has given us much to be thankful for. Wouldn't you agree? Let's, not be, let's be mindful and thank Him in these days. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, and if you know anything about the nation of Israel, there were times when they did not thank the Lord and became very uh, self-confident and self-dependent and arrogant and when God took away His blessings, uh, they experienced great distress and turmoil. Turn with me in uh, the book of Nehemiah. I was reading uh, through uh, this book and this uh, these chapters here in the lat- kind of the middle part of the book really just spoke to me, and um, so Lord, thought I'd just share what God taught me in, in these passages. Just to kind of set the stage here, I think most tonight would be familiar with Nehemiah, the person, the man, and how he heard of the plight that had happened in his nation. We know that the Assyrians attacked the northern part of Israel, and Babylon came to the southern part, and this was God's judgment on His people for not obeying His laws and um, spurning his love and not being obedient, as I said, being arrogant. We'll read in the scripture, the Bible talks about how they hardened their necks. And what that simply means is they would not bow to God's authority. And so um, God would bring leanness to their soul. And sadly, the great splendor that Jerusalem was known for was decimated. If you watch the news and you know the current war in Ukraine, if you've seen pictures on the news, you'll see buildings totally collapsed. Or you'll see buildings that have just gaping holes in them. Of course, that's modern warfare. But in Nehemiah's day and in the day of Ezra, the city was leveled. Jerusalem was was just torn down. Um, Dead bodies laying in the street. It was horrible. It was a wreck. And Nehemiah had learned of this. And so he's, he's like us. He, he, he's a patriot. He's a nationalist. He's, he's a Jew. He loves his country and would die for his country. Like, like many of us that love America, live in America. And he was uh, serving far away as a cupbearer to the king, King Xerxes. And, uh, you know, he was in a comfortable position uh, he was probably fed from the king's table and, had, had it plush, if you could say it that way, compared to maybe other, other people in exile. And so it would have been very easy for uh, Nehemiah to um, maybe not think so much about what was going on back home. And as I was reading, um, well, let me mention just about being a cupbearer. It only took one time for the king to probably be poisoned. And Nehemiah, someone would have to find someone to fill his shoes because that's what he did. He, he was the first person to taste Whatever the king drank and ate, and if it was poison, uh, Nehemiah would die. And so how would you like that for, for a job? <laughs> but um, I, I think Nehemiah, as we, we're not going to read the beginning of the book, but Nehemiah the person, uh, most likely had favor with the king. He was trustworthy, he was a faithful servant. And just kind of, a, maybe in a imaginary way, think about. Nehemiah, as we kind of set the scene here before we dive into, uh, ne- we're going to look at Nehemiah 9, and then ne- or Nehemiah chapter 12, we'll read one verse, I'll have you stand here in just a minute, and then I'll be preaching out of Nehemiah chapter 9, but think about this, maybe Nehemiah was down at the gate of, of the Susa, maybe he was, had a break from where the king was not eating, not, maybe something, maybe his day wasn't too busy, and he's just down there watching people, listening to people, and he hears maybe someone that's been on a long journey, someone that speaks the Hebrew language, and they just talk about what they saw. Hey, I was passing through Jerusalem. You, you wouldn't believe what this place looks like now. Uh, the, the walls are down, and neighboring nations and people around them can just enter in and take whatever they want. They can pillage. They can come at daytime. They can come at nighttime. There's no gates. There's no, there's no security. Just the total, the place is overran, and, and Nehemiah hears this, and He's burdened and he's heartsick. He loves Israel. And he might say something like this, How long, O Lord, wilt thou overlook our nation while it suffers so many miseries and so many people prey upon Jerusalem and spoil it? And so he could have just been lamenting there and then someone says, Hey, the king's about ready to have his meal and then he ushers off and does his job. But Nehemiah is burdened and we know he is... Burdened to such a degree that the king realizes, just by the look on his face, something's bothering Nehemiah. Fast forwarding, he gets approval from the king to go back to Jerusalem. He even gets papers, kind of like a license, maybe a passport. He can travel here, there, and yonder and have supplies and goes and surveys the city. And he organizes the people and they begin to um, take this Wall that's wrecked, and he gets every one of them organized to work on the portion of the wall in front of their house. And in 52 days, they rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. In fact, it's such a miracle that the neighboring, you know, their their enemies, their neighbors realize, hey, the only way that that can happen in such a short amount of time is God is involved. And so, as that happens, they begin to dedicate the wall. And that's kind of about where we where we pick up and in chapter eight uh, is where they're or seven and eight. There's a there's some de- rededication of themselves. But let, let's look at Nehemiah 12. Just read one verse. If you would stand, please. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. Let's look at that verse. Verse. <clears throat> Also, that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. That verse is amazing to me because if you understand, and I think we do, we understand this was not really a time for rejoicing, having been on the backside of a of a destructive invasion by Babylon, exiles coming back, a remnant, many people dead. Much of the splendor of Jerusalem is forever gone, but they make great sacrifices and rejoice because God made them rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for how we can see your heart and your involvement in the lives of your people. And Lord, I pray that this event that happened so long ago in history would be real to us today. Lord, this is Your Word. It helps us understand people. It helps us understand You. And I pray, God, it would help us understand the love and the grace that is Your character, Your attribute. And Lord, would You help us draw an eye to You and love You because You are worthy of our love. And Lord, You're worthy of the highest love that we can give or bestow upon You. Lord, help us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and please be seated. So as I mentioned, the wall was finished in 52 days and after this f- is finished, Nehemiah and Ezra begin to bring the people back to God. There's a, there's a turning from the way they used to live and how they see their life and, and in chapter 8, this is what I call the Bible conference in Jerusalem. And if we're not going to read all of chapter 8, but if you look at... Verses 16 through 18 in chapter 8. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. Ezra had brought the book of the law out and he stood and he read the, the law. He just read the law of Moses. He read the Bible. And they learned, wait, we haven't been observing this feast, this feast of tabernacles and so that's what you see in verse 16. There's, they just hadn't been doing it. They hadn't been. They just neglected the word of God. And they, they didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to rule themselves. They didn't know how to worship and celebrate what God had done. In verse 10, um, you see there, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so there's a great celebration. And look at verse 18. Of Chapter 8, and also day by day from the first day into the last, okay, from the first day to the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So they read the book. And what would happen is when, when Ezra would read the book, the Bible tells us that he caused them to understand what he read, preaching. Um, I'm hoping not to be foolish. I know preaching is foolish to those who don't know the Lord, who don't know the church, but I don't want to be a foolish preacher. But Ezra began to teach the people what was in the law. And when they learned what was in the Bible, when they learned what was in the law of God, it changed how they lived. It changed them. They celebrated. In this chapter, they're celebrating. And he does it every day. They come to him every day, and he reads From the first day to the last. But in the latter latter part of verse 18, something begins to change in the people because the Bible tells us on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So let's look at verse 9. Now, in the 20th and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, they just finished a feast. A a week's worth of feasting and celebrating and eating the fat and drinking the sweet and giving food away. But now, having been under the preaching of the word of God, the teaching and preaching of the law, something changes in their atmosphere. They're fasting with sackcloth and earth or dust upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins in the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God. Pay attention. One fourth part of the day and another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. I've titled this message, simple title, Three Reasons Why We Can Rejoice in Our God. In this first point, reason number one, because God is great. Why can't we rejoice in God? Because He's a great God. I think the word great loses a lot of its meaning to us today, maybe because we use it often, but it's the, the magnitude of who God is. And His law is so impacting, they spent three hours just listening to the Word of God read. And they spent another three hours confessing their sins and worshiping the Lord their God. Six hours in a church service, if I could say it that way. Six hours assembled, this remnant of God's people. Six hours of hearing the Word of God, turning to God, turning from their wickedness to God, confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Why? Because God's so great. They understood who God is again. Um, In fact, the Levites command them and say, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. I mean, verse 5, and and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, I just tell you what the people were doing, which is what they hadn't done for too long, decades too long. They were just taking time to be holy. Taking time. God had taken every blessing away from his people. Why? Because he's such a hard God. He's so hard. He's just ready to put his thumb on his people. No, he loved his people. He chose them as a special people. But he took away their blessing. He wanted them to return to him, taking time to be holy. We sing a hymn that's titled, Taking Time to Be Holy. I have not here in my notes. I won't read it to you, but we sing words like this. Take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Speak often with thy Lord. I don't know how long it had been since the Israelites had really stopped and spent time in God's Word. Letting the Word search their heart for their sin and then taking time to agree with God about their sin and then worshiping God for forgiving them of their sin and restoring them, how about you? Do you spend time with God? I'm not saying we need six hours, but I tell you, we learned in uh, change into his image that there ought to be times in our lives where we have extended times alone with God. We need that. Brother Cherry challenged us today about just the busyness of life and when he was talking about, you know, he was giving us an example of how busy we go from thing to thing to appointment to schedule to this to that. That's how probably all of us live. And we can easily. I don't say we purposely get a pen and write down in our day planner scheduling and, and schedule God out of our lives. But we'll get so focused and so busy on what we think is important we neglect the most important relationship in our lives we can just we can hurry along and say well i'll read my bible this afternoon i'll read it tonight before i go to bed i'll do it tomorrow morning i, I i'm just going to double down and and god had to put these people in a position where there was no other place to there was nothing else to do in their lives. There was nothing else going on in their lives. And now they see how great God is. And, and look at verse 6. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. These are the this is the people. They're following the commandment of the Levites. He's, they're telling them, stand. Worship your God, and here are their words. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Wow. They've got to they see how great God is. I, I don't, let's, let's, uh, that's why I was thinking about. Let's thank God now. Let's humble ourselves now. Let's not have God to humble us, have to humble us, and have to put us in a place where He's stripped us of all our blessings, and it takes an entire day for us to realize that we need to get right with Him. God's a great God. We should want to obey a command like the Levites gave the people to stand up and bless the Lord their God. Uh, Philippians two nineteen through 11, wherefore God has... Highly exalted him and given him a name which is, above every, which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That ought to be our regular activity. That we would see the great God that we serve. Reason number two we can rejoice in our God is because And I don't want to say simply, but it's powerful. God is good. He's very good. And then they begin to talk about how good God is. Look at verse 7. They talk about Abraham and how God brought Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees and gave him another name, Abraham. Why is that so important? Well, God didn't have to. God didn't have to go and choose Abraham. He wanted, he was looking out into eternity and said, I'm going to Through Abraham, I'm going to begin this nation, these people that I am choosing. God found Abraham faithful. And it says in verse 8 that he entered into a covenant with Abraham. I think of it this way, and, and don't take this the wrong way or anything, but God entered into a marriage with Abraham. That's the strength of that word covenant. He, he, he entered into a, an agreement that Abraham was not to break. Nor, and God is faithful. God's not going to break his part of the covenant. But he was married to Abraham. Why? The whole world would be benefited from Abraham in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, that's us, we're the heathen, through faith we'd be justified, preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. They understood that. And that he had given them a wonderful land. Um, look at the b- bottom half of verse 8. To give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. They, they rehearse their deliverance out of Egypt. In verses 9 through 11, that God saw their affliction, and it talks about how he destroyed all the armies of Egypt at one time. In verse 11, and their persecutors thou threw us into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. There, Israel was its own army. I like what we studied about in chapter 8. This is kind of a side, but um, you know, it's challenging us in chapter 8 that God's inviting us to do his work. And It talks about having a a God-centered life uh, compared to a self-centered life. And and then um, we learned this morning about how, um, you know, God has purposes and plans for us. And and we can can, uh, be doing things our own way, our own strength, our own plan. They use the life of Moses. And I like the illustration that Moses in his own strength tried to lead the people out of Egypt. And what happened? He murdered somebody. That was was Moses seeing God's hand in his life and maybe seeing what God was leading him to do and he kills a man. What do you think if Moses would have tried to lead the army of Egypt out of Egypt? I know you know the answer to this. Many people would have died. But God in his goodness and his benevolence single-handedly shows his might and power to the Egyptians to such a degree that they're basically paying the Hebrews, to get out of Egypt. Wow. They gave them all the wealth, all the food, all the gold. Please go. (laughs) And then he destroys the greatest army at that time, the Egyptian. He works in the heart. He makes that leader of the army so tenacious that he's willing to drive his army till the wheels fall off. They're so determined. I'm going to get those people. And they're forever in the depths of the sea. They're rehearsing this. Nehemiah and the people are rehearsing how good God is. The deliverance from Egypt. And they talk about how God led them with the, the pillar uh, in, the, in the day, and the pillar of fire by night, and how he came down to Mount Sinai and gave them from heaven the judgments the laws, and the statutes to Moses. I think about also when Moses begins to, there's a, there's a time when Mo, God tells Moses, you know what, I, I'm going to start over with you. I, I'm going to destroy the nation of Israel, and Moses, I'm going to begin a new nation through you. And Moses appeals to God and says, God, if you destroy the nation of Israel, then what, what would the Egyptians say? That, that God simply delivered them? just to take them out into the wilderness and kill them. And it's amazing that conversation, that prayer time between Moses and God, because God lets Moses entreat him and God doesn't destroy the Israelites and begins to uh, lead them and and let them survive the wilderness. We call it the wilderness wanderings, But they're rehearsing the goodness of God. And why did God come down and give them the commandments, the precepts, the statutes, and the laws? It's so that they, know what ha- they would know how to govern themselves. He gave them the law so that they would know who God is and that they would know God's will for them. That was the purpose of the law. It helped them live. It wasn't just a list of rules, although that's, there are, these are, the, these are the actions, the commands I want you to do. And here's some commands that you're to, here's some things you're to not do, but ultimately, can I just say it was simply, God wanted them to know His will for their life. And it's that way for me and you today. God gave us His Word so that we can know His will. And we learned in our Bible lesson our Sunday school lesson today is God commends us for our compliance, not for our performance. And I just say, the pressure comes off. You don't have to dream uh, higher goals for your life. Although, if God's leading you in that direction, obey God, but there's no pressure from God for you to be some kind of great achiever or performer for Him. He can do that through you and me if we're simply surrendered and submissive to the authority. I like that equation. I, uh, I'm like most people. I have trouble getting into that, that equation. I am bent towards self, sadly. I know you're not. I know you're, you're firing on all eight cylinders and life's good for you. It's teasing. But, um, and I think it's interesting that they mention the Sabbath, the commandments. And um, I think it's true they mentioned the Sabbath law. I'm going to mention it if it's not in here. Um, but he gave them the law. And I thought about the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath law was not for the neighboring nations to obey. It was for Israel. And I begin to think about this, that the, the Sabbath was, obviously we know God rested on the seventh day. And so he commanded his people that they're to take time and rest. And there was activities that they were to cease from. And there was activities that they should uh, perform. And so often I can be guilty of just thinking these are do's and don'ts. And we need to do this and we need to do that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what's the purpose behind that? It was so that the rest of the world would see God in a set of people who obeyed his commands and they would see there's something different. This is a God who has caused his people to not work and, and rest and rely upon him. And they're blessed. They, they have things. And it would show up in material, in material possessions, but that's... The law was given to, to them so that they could be a priesthood to the world. God, God wanted to be the king of the Israelites. That was his desire. He wanted to rule over them. I mean, he was the best king they ever had. And when they, when they chose King Saul, they took a step down. And it just kept going down. I mean, even, even King David, as wonderful of a king he was, he's not, he was not a king like King Jesus. And so this whole time there, I believe in this moment, in chapter nine, in this time period, this truth is a realization to the people of Israel. And out of that, they're, they're confessing their sins. They're worshiping their God. They're remembering who God is, his great goodness to them. Like in, in verse 17, um, "...and refused to obey, neither were mindful of their wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, <clears throat> and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage." That's referring to Numbers 14, when they cry out, "Why did Moses just brought us here to kill us, we should go back in Egypt and die. And you, you realize that Egypt is still in the hearts of Israel. Because the moment they get in a distressful moment, their first words, their first thought is, well, let's go back. It was still inside. I like the half, this half of 17. <clears throat> but thou art God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsook them not. A great picture of the goodness and mercy of God. You know, in Deuteronomy, the Israelites were commanded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. How could Israel turn their backs on God after all He had done for them? They did not truly love Him. Their obedience was only an outward form. It did not come from their hearts. In their hearts, they were still living in Egypt and wanting to return there. They did not have a living faith in God. Israel was only willing to receive His help and enjoy His gifts. You ever wonder how God felt about that? About His people and how they had turned from Him, how they had not been obedient, had stiffened their necks against him or towards him. I think we have a really good picture in the New Testament, and really it's the picture of the heart of God. Turn with me to John chapter 21. At the end of the chapter, John chapter 21 and verse 14. This is where Peter and Jesus are together. And Jesus is, this is the resurrected Savior. He has, this is the third time he had shown himself to his disciples And in verse 15 of chapter 21, it reads, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now that word that Jesus is talking to Peter with is the highest love. It's the agape love. And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. That's a lower form of love or the next step down from the agape, the phileo love. And we know that Jesus asked him three times about his love towards him. And we would probably know that that's the same number of times that Peter had denied Jesus. And Jesus is there with Peter and he's challenging Peter about his love for him and his service to him. And I think it's interesting that probably while Peter was listening to Jesus and he's trying to answer the questions... And in his mind is the day that he denied the Lord and cursed and said words that would let you believe that he didn't even know who Jesus was. Put yourself in that conversation. And Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you have the highest form of love for me? And Peter, Peter thinking of all the times he would boasted about how he would never leave Christ and and so many times Peter was probably thinking, you know, these other 10 or 11, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of off the rails, but not me. I, I'm with you. Lord, I, I'm with you. I, I'll never deny you. And all of that's turning in his mind and he's, he knows. <laughs> he's probably looking at Jesus and say, you, you know what I did. And so he can't answer. He can't answer, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you to the highest love that you're loving me. And he asked him, three, asked him three times, and Jesus is wanting Peter to say, "I agape love you." And, and so the last time that, that Jesus asked Peter, he simply asked him, "Are you fond of me, Peter? Do you Phileo love me?" And it almost seems like seems like Jesus is coming down to Peter's level and this, this, this asking of love and Peter's grieved. And I think about this as Jesus, we would say, man, Peter, just, just make yourself vulnerable, Peter, and just you know, tell, tell Jesus that you love him to the highest degree. But in this moment, looking at the man who had denied him three times, Jesus is the one who's making himself vulnerable to another man because already he knows that Peter's already been disobedient. Because Peter remembers, those who love Jesus obey His commandments. He had commanded Peter, stay put until our return. And Peter had already gone fishing. He'd already disobeyed God. And here he is again, looking into the face of his Savior. And so why do I bring us to this point? Is that if we go back to Nehemiah chapter 9, we can sometimes think about this great God, this good God, and this entire nation of people. But right here we get to see the heart of Jesus, who loves Peter. And really wants to elevate Peter to a place where Peter can love him with the same love that's been dispensed out. It takes Jesus enabling Peter, enabling you and me to love with an agape love. For how else can we love him with all of our heart and soul and strength? So, why the revival in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, 11, 12? The people begin to experience and realize not only this good God, this great God, but a God who loves them. I mean, he loves them with a great love. And you might think, well, As I look at the pictures and and I look at the scriptures and just what what happened in their lives, but God loves them. In their rebellion, the Bible says that they had hardened their necks and and right there it says, but God, you chose to be merciful. You chose to to pardon them. You chose to be gracious and to be merciful. You, God, were slow to anger and you didn't forsake them. And so when we read God in the Old Testament, let let us understand that that picture between Jesus and Peter, it's the same relationship between this mighty, terrible God who led the Israelites. It's the same love relationship. Same God. Same God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. God, this whole book, this whole book of Nehemiah and the rest of them, it's about a loving relationship with the God of heaven. Amen. That's, it's, as hard as it may be for us to comprehend, that's why Babylon came in and decimated Jerusalem. If I could say it this way, God didn't care about the splendor of Jerusalem. He's got more of that in heaven. He wants you. God's not impressed by your bank account. He wants you. He wants me. Just like a good parent will remove every obstacle between them and their child at the expense of even maybe losing the relationship because they love that child so much that if this is going to hurt you, if this is going to destroy you, even if you turn from me, I'm I'm going to do what is right, as a loving parent, and as hard as it was to watch Israel uh, have great distress, look at the result. This remnant is now in a place where God's going to use them to bring the Messiah. They saw this good God, this great God, and the last point of why we can Rejoice in our God. It's because He's a God that's full of amazing grace. He is full of grace, or God is gracious. You could write it down either way. He is full of grace. In Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 30, uh, we see yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified us against them by thy spirit and thy, and thy prophets? Yet would they not give ear? Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake thou didst not utter- utterly consume them nor forsake them for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty and the terrible God who keepeth covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that thou come upon us on our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto to this day how be it thou art just Listen to this this is the people talking to the Lord how be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us for thou hast done right but we have done wickedly they acknowledged and owned their own guilt they did take time and they identified with the sins of their fathers in fact Their prayer looks much like Nehemiah's prayer in in Nehemiah chapter 1, where Nehemiah, you you hear him use the pronoun we. He's taking ownership of what's happening to Jerusalem, Uh, even though he may not have been the one. He says, we've sinned against God, me and my father's house. We've sinned. We've done very corruptly against thee. Um, Later on in this same chapter, we're reminded that the nation had experienced abundant blessings but still sinned against God. They were in the land of promise, here, rebuilding the wall. But you know what? They couldn't enjoy it. All the good of the land, the fat of the land, went to the king of Persia. Even their own bodies were subject to the king. When God was their king, they enjoyed great blessings. And when they rebelled, they found themselves enslaved to kings with no compassion. But God allows them to start A new beginning. Look at verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. They couldn't go back and change the past, what their fathers had done, what they had done. If you could say it was written down forever. They couldn't go back and change the fact that their country, their nation had been... uh, uh, invaded by two opposing armies and in and great distress. And, but here's what they could do. They could go forward from here. And God allows them uh, to surrender. He, he listens to them. He is letting them enter into a covenant. And can I just tell you, if you continue to read the book of Nehemiah, you'll start to see where they already, later on in the chapter, have trouble keeping this covenant. You read in verse 38, poor humans, they just can't get it right, right? They cry out to God for more mercy and forgiveness. They make a covenant with God. They, they make a covenant. God, we will obey your law. We will do your will. And God honors that. He uses this remnant from here forward to see the Messiah come and save the world. So how do we apply how do we apply all of this? And there's, there's many. There's, I've got a whole list here of applications that we can draw from the book of Nehemiah in, in chapter 9. And I, and I am closing this up and wrapping this up. I think is to let us ask ourselves some questions. We saw in the beginning of the chapter how the people took time to get, to get holy, to get clean, to spend time in God's Word, to confess their sins and worship God. Can I ask you this? This is for all of us. How's your quiet time with the Lord? Amen. Amen. Are you taking time to be holy? That's where that time is spent. That's what it's for. It's to, it's to get alone with God, to let God have the first fruits of our day and I realize people have different schedules and and we don't want to put anyone in a box and say it has to be in the a.m. it has to be in the morning although many would agree that if that's the time that you choose that's a better time than most but whatever time it is whether it's the midday or the evening time whatever time you've committed what is your quiet time like these days if we were to look at the bookmark or the ribbon in your bible is it moving are you reading God's word are we praying to God? Are we asking God to search our heart? Are we confessing sin? Uh, I heard a preacher from, I think it was an, 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 a, a chapel message from Ambassador Baptist College a long ago, and he said, uh, you know, if we, if we think we haven't sinned, we need to confess God that we have a lying tongue. Just the the, the thought life of the Christian will, will drive us to our knees, if we're honest. How about separation? You know, God instructed His people, and you notice in verse uh, in chapter 9 that they had separated themselves because the Israelites had married other nations. They had intermarried, and that was against God's uh, word, against God's law. I don't believe that that was lending to that they were divorcing and breaking up marriages, but the Jews were getting alone with only Jews. They were separating themselves from even probably their own family for a time to get along with God. Are you separated from this world? Or is the culture, are, are we adopting practices and, 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 um, and habits? And are we, is our media, is it looking like the pagan nations around us? Because this culture is like its own pagan nation. And we are not to be a part of the culture. We are different. Uh, we're not to. We're not to be. Um, f- please understand when I say this. We're not to be like the trans maniacs in our culture. Listen, that's a sin against God. It's a sin against the Bible. And there are two. There are two kinds of people. There's males. There's females. It's biologically correct. And as much as we need to to get the gospel of those people, um, we're not to be like them and to be. Practicing what they practice. Um, we're to be different in how we dress. We're to be different in our social media. We're to be di- different in the, in the music we listen to. L- listen, I, everywhere we go, you, you the TV, the radio, the supermarket, listen, there is wickedness. We're in a sex-saturated culture, and you had better be on guard everywhere you go. Can I just ask, are you and I separated from that which would defile us? Is your language different than those that you are with at work? The jokes and the sidebars or the even, even just, you know, a facial expression will lend someone to know that you're involved in that practice too. Uh, nonverbal communication. We must be separated. God wanted them separated, because they were representing Him and He's holy. Are you more in love with your career than you are with God? Your, your bank account, your, your hobbies? You know, we're to be in love with the Creator, not in love with the creation. Have we stopped and thanked God for His blessings? Do you and I only run to God when trouble comes? Have you forgotten that God has the master view, the bigger view of your life, and that His purposes and His plans are far higher than your thoughts and your plans and your purposes for your life? And I guess this last question, and we'll have an invitation here. Can you see what it is that's drawing you away from loving God with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your soul and all of your might? Can you point that out in your life and say, God, I want victory right there? When stresses and distress and difficult times come, are you like the Israelites and your first words are, let's go back to Egypt? Or are your first words, I need God? That will determine the direction that you head on a daily basis. Is who do you cry out to? What do you cry out for when stress, distress, and difficult times come? Uh, let's stand if we would for a moment and